In the 1960s, the notorious Zodiac killer terrorised the city of San Francisco, brutally murdering five innocent victims. He sent cryptic messages to police and local newspapers, taunting the public with cryptograms and clues to his identity. Now a group of sleuths claims to have solved the case of the infamous Zodiac Killer. Some bombshell claims in the hunt for the notorious Zodiac Killer. The murderer terrorized Northern California back in the late 1960s, and the cases were never solved. But now, after all these years, a group of investigators say they know who the Zodiac Killer is. More than 50 years ago, the Zodiac Killer first terrorized the Bay Area. Now, members of a group of 40 specialists say they have identified him. Did you see this? Unfortunately, yes. Here comes every lunatic in California. I'm the Zodiac. And how did you kill your victims? With a gun? No. With a hammer. All I'm authorized to tell you is that he's still under government employment. And who authorized you to tell me this? That's all I'm authorized to say. Only a little rat bastard like Andre could have done something like cut off all the victims' hands. Zodiac didn't cut off any of the victims' hands. Are you sure? Yes, sir. Travis and I worked here side by side for 10 years. His foot gets crushed in an accident and the killings begin. Coincidence? I don't know. You're a cop, man. Do the math. That's all I have to say about that. Well, and it's got that amazing energy with Hall in that final bit where it's like, he's just like, I got him. I've got it. And then he doesn't, you know? Because that's the thing. You see him wanting so desperately that uh, definitive, dramatic, bravura ending. Yes. And he just doesn't. You know, and you're left with like, man, that poor fucking guy. Like, he must just like wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, being like, I almost had him. But, you know, and it's like, the thing is, like, I can really relate with that energy because it's like, I mean, I got like kind of uh, like an obsessive need to create order. You know, it's like I got like this OCD thing about like even numbers and shit, which, you know, we don't have time to get into that. But it's like, <laughs> what I'm saying is, I can feel. David Fincher on this you know it's like I, I love having that control, you know like as well but I also am fascinated by the void and I, you know and it's like I don't know you don't want to project too much onto a creator who isn't yourself but it's like I mean I really think that on some level he was sort of like gazing into the abyss at this whole story and just being like fuck there's nothing you know and it's like and, and that's so vivid at certain points in this movie yeah Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Finch's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt, the film, of course, stars an incredible ensemble cast led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Anthony Edwards, and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. This is the 20th episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Libra Part 2. Writer of many kinds of criticism, and obsessive, Danny Bowes, provided our introduction today. Before we dive into the theme of the week in the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening, especially now on Spotify. It's a huge help for those fellow lovers of our brand of obsessive cinematic deep dives to find us. Also want to let you know that links to our Patreon with weekly rum and rant and special uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews, as well as links to our merchandise with artwork by firstly, the incredible Brianna Ashby, and secondly, 
the great Amy Reid are in the show description or at oneheatminute.com. Joining me to point out that the one thing we know about the Zodiac is that he reads the Chronicle R. Eagle Scout, first class, former cartoonist at the San Francisco Chronicle, best-selling author of Zodiac, Zodiac Unmasked, and now Shooting Zodiac, a chronicle of the long journey of the story that defines his career being translated from page to screen, the one and only Robert Graysmith. Writer, actor, and star of Zodiac, Donald Logue. Star of Zodiac, John Carroll Lynch. The former film critic at the LA Weekly, Village Voice, turned filmmaker and screenwriter of Black Christmas, and the former host of the Switchblade Sisters podcast, April Wolf. Film critic for the Los Angeles Times and NPR's Fresh Air, and former chief film critic at Variety, Justin Chang. Host of the Screen Jars podcast and Bidiot's Trivia, Clay Keller, and newcomer to Zodiac Chronicle, but stalwart supporter of everything we do in One Heat Minute Productions, film critic, writer, editor, for the New York Magazine. He's contributed to publications like the LA Weekly, New York Times, Village Voice. He is also an accomplished writer and director for Known for a New Guy, Purse Snatcher, and The Barber of Siberia, the one and only person I want chronicling our remaining master filmmakers. The man who I'm going to let open this episode, Mr. Bilger Abiri. And the other thing I think about Zodiac, and this is why I think maybe it, it, I think about it along with Citizen Kane in my head, because the structure is very important and also very delicate. Like, there's a lot that's not said in Zodiac. And I think this is also true of all the President's Men, which we talked about. You know, there's a lot of reading between the lines that happens. Mm. And, and there's a lot of, like, the, the film very purposefully, like, jumps in time, especially towards the end, this, this end section here where it's just like, so it's four years later and <laughs> a year later and it's seven years later and people are like, lives are changing. Um, and you don't want, the, the effect of the film is so tied into that structure, that open-ended structure about the things it tells you and the things it doesn't and just kind of just the little grace notes that it leaves in your head that to know more about it, would actually, I think, kind of dissolve the illusion somewhat. Yes. Um, and I think that's really, because he, here's something that that struck me, not this last rewatch, but maybe the rewatch before. The three most chilling scenes for me in Zodiac are the scene on the highway um, with the Andy Scott. Uh, the Melvin Belli phone call when, when, when the caller screams. And then the basement scene with, with Bob Vaughn. All three of those scenes, I think, I think, I, I mean, I know with the other two, I, I can't remember with, with if, it's, if that's the case with Bella. I think it's the case. All three of those people are not Zodiac. <laughs> yeah, no. Right? And and no, it was not Zodiac who called the Bella right. scene. It was someone from All a mental All three of those people yeah. are not Zodiac. <laughs> and one, it says one thing to me. It says, I mean, especially the basement scene, I, I feel like, Okay, this scene is here for maybe one kind of very practical reason, which is that you're making a thriller, you're making a horror movie, or you, you, you're like playing a little bit within the horror genre. You need some scares. Like you need a scene near the end that's just like fucking terrifying. And this is the scene. And it's not the guy, but whatever. <laughs> it's scary. Um, and then the, the, but then the highway scene, I think, is obviously an important part of the Zodiac case because it was a thing. But it's also like you wouldn't, 
the authenticity of the movie would not um, would would not lose anything if that scene wasn't in the film, right? Yes. The Belle Eye scene you kind of have to have, but the fact that all three of these scenes are from about people who are not the Zodiac. So not only by the end of the film have we not actually caught Zodiac killer, <laughs> there are these other fucking people, like <laughs> right? And so the fact that this is all part of this narrative begins to really gnaw at your brain mm. because it's incomplete, it's open-ended, but it's also open-ended in this terrifying way, which is none of these situations were resolved. And yeah. it's all just part of this like incredible, intense mystery of, of life. Um, and it's very hard to walk away from the movie as a result feeling in any way satisfied. Not sad. I mean, you're satisfied because you've seen a great film, hopefully. Um, but you're not set like you have not achieved closure on any level whatsoever. No. By the time this film is over, like the only good, uh, the only level on which you've achieved closure. Okay, well, at least Arthur Lee Allen is dead. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't see it happen, so who knows, you know? But it's like, um, but and, and you see what I mean? Like that. The, that's why the structure of the film is so important. I think to the effect that it has on you because it's like it's not no loophole is no loophole is closed no you know it, the investigation is maybe ongoing. not maybe real life investigation yeah it is actually still ongoing in certain areas um and i think that that's that's really scary you know yeah. and that's and that's scary on a level that's not just you know, boo, horror, scary, or even on that kind of real deep, raw, you know, Silence of the Lambs kind of scary. It's scary on this very existential level because it's kind of, um, you know, when he says, you know, just because you can't prove it, it doesn't mean it's not true. I mean, that's basically, I mean, <laughs> that's the essence of everything about life, right? Yes. Um, and that's the that's the mystery that we have to live with uh and and you know very often that mystery is about like maybe nice things or maybe about sort of some optimistic hopeful thing about the world that mystery but zodiac is the opposite it's like just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's true people say that about god for example right yes. they say that about the afterlife they say that about all these things that are i mean depending on your point of view but i think for the most part people think of those as positive forces like yes even i mean i'm an atheist but if, if i found out that there was a god i'd be like oh cool <laughs> like, great you know if i found out there was an afterlife i'd be like yes oh, <laughs> you know? what a relief right? what a I mean, relief right? right just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's not true but this one is just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's not true there are fucking monsters out there and they're gonna kill you um <laughs> you know the end roll credits <laughs> goodbye <laughs> yeah Every episode, we've used a film title to encapsulate our theme. And this sequence of the film sees Graysmith listless, looking down dead ends, until he receives a phone call that validates one thing. Not only does the Zodiac and people who are following the Zodiac case read the Chronicle, but that our Zodiac, oh boy, does he love movies. And so I thought, in keeping with... Phone calls from film fans to potential victims. 
and as a little tip of the hat to one screenwriter, Jamie Vanderbilt, that we have to make this week's theme, Scream. In our last episode, we left off with Mark Ruffalo's Dave Tosky giving Jake Gyllenhaal a key piece of information. That information was to get to Zach Grenier's Mel Nicolai. What's wonderful about this entire sequence of the film is that from this tipping point, an escalation, a crescendo, we get dragged back to Earth. There's something so assured about the pivot to this de-escalation not wanting to play the Zodiac's game. And now, let's get to this scene. Mel Nikolai. Thank you. Goodbye. I just need to confirm a date. Mr. Graysmith. I've narrowed it down between the 18th and the 20th of December, and I just Okay, I'll play. Let's say this phone call did take place. Let's say it really was Zodiac. Why would he volunteer the day he was born? Plus, nobody died on December 18th, just like nobody died over the weekend when he was going to kill a dozen people or when he was going to shoot school kids or blow up buses. He's a liar, Mr. Graysmith. What if he made a mistake? What if he wasn't lying? What if it was him on the phone? He didn't expect to pick it up, uh, a nice person to pick up. What if, what if, what if? Look, off the record, Bill Armstrong checked this out. We took this very seriously. None of the suspects had the same birthday as this phantom caller. Bill Armstrong. He's a liar, Mr. Graysmith. This is absolutely true. And I think what's driving Robert Graysmith and the script from Jay's Vanderbilt and Fincher and Gyllenhaal here is, but who is the lie for? When the Zodiac's lying, is it for his audience? Is it for him? Who is it for? And Nikolai, Zach Grenier, provides such a necessary and essential dismissive skepticism. He's a repeat offender so to speak, for this kind of thing in the Fincher canon. That line, if, what if he didn't expect a nice person to pick up, is deeply fascinating. Firstly, it's a Graysmithism. And it speaks to the contradictory nature of Zodiac. Finally, what's important here in the pause of this scene is Bill Armstrong articulating that name. There's a strange mirroring here. Just as Zodiac disappears from the case, so does the thorough, regimented focus of Bill Armstrong. Anthony Edwards, in a strange way, was an anchor, a sort of mediating energy that kept this entire case together. And his presence now is felt in a vacuum. This next moment is advice to a desperate man. A leap of faith. A wrong turn. Can I give you a piece of advice? You're looking in the wrong place. Handwriting fingerprints, that's what this whole thing is about. Stick to the evidence. Hey. 
How's your day? Chloe Sevigny's performance here is outstanding as Melanie. The pregnant pause before she replies long really infers everything about how hard the structure of their modest home is to maintain. And the production design and art direction by Donald Graham Burt and Keith Cunningham respectively really demonstrates that in a gracefully imperfect way, this woman is holding their home together. Who's Sherwood Morrill? He's a handwriting expert in uh, Sacramento. He called. He said he could meet you tomorrow morning at 7. Oh, great. So you're taking off work? Uh, just an hour. Sacramento is two hours away. Really? Yes. What's this? Oh, that's, uh, that's the, uh, that article. Robert Graysmith has quietly been shopping his book about the Zodiac. It talks all about you researching Zodiac. Well, that's what the article's about. I'm not so sure that's something we want people to know about. Why, are you embarrassed? Robert, what's the one thing we know about Zodiac? He reads the Chronicle? Uh, yeah, but he's never gonna read Herb Cain. Danger, danger, danger. This is yet another time that Melanie Close Sevigny has passed on a message and reminded Jake Gyllenhaal's Robert Graysmith, that there's a time and a distance impact. This pursuit is ultimately having an impact. The more I watch this scene play out, the greater the comparison, albeit relative to Avery. Hunting Zodiac, whether intended or accidental, invites or inspires you to attract attention. There's a convergence, recurring loops of maddening blind spots. Zodiac reads the chronicle. You might say it's a Zodiac chronicle. This is another moment of chaos. His blind spot is so large that he's willing to bank that he knows the Zodiac so well that he'll even know which columns will grab his attention. Hello. Yeah? I can tell you who the Zodiac is. Who is this? The Zodiac Killer is obsessed with movies. He recorded his murders on film. I tried to tell the police, but they wouldn't follow through on it. There's a man you need to find. His name is Bob Vaughn. Spank. A-U-G-H-N. He's a friend of the Zodiacs. Mr. Vaughn does not know his friend is a killer, and he's storing some film canisters for him. Okay, you have a friend? Who, who, uh, you, who's this friend? You have quite enough to get started. Oh, please. Zodiac's name is Rick Marshall. Your toast is burning. It's a great moment of levity in this stretch of the film for Graysmith to say he doesn't read the Chronicle and immediately the caller to introduce himself says... Mr. Graysmith from the paper. There's also an incredible formal restraint. To avoid all the president's men, Pakula-esque split diopter shots, which focus on the extent of the widescreen frame and blur out the middle to have the two poles, if you like, of the frame in stark, stark focus. 
But in these scenes and these sequences, as two characters are interacting with each other in the same frame and are in the sharpest of focuses, you can feel like Fincher and the dearly departed cinematographer Harris Savides were echoing and framing that quality without directly homaging. This scene, hiding around the corners, away from Melanie, and the ways in which Chloe Sevigny's Melanie comes back into the frame. It's just constantly moments of Graysmith's chaos being provided with order and structure from the other people in the frame. Speaking of chaos and order, here's the chaotic truth from Robert Graysmith himself about what it felt like in these moments when he was gaining notoriety about investigating the Zodiac while the Zodiac was still out there and still writing letters and still making phone calls. So how, well, did, how did you contend with that when you were in the middle of your investigation of like... I, I didn't. You didn't. That's the problem. The only time I was really frightened was the basement scene. Yes. But uh, the thing about Arthur Lee Allen, I'm in the newspaper every day. You got to realize I was in the Chronicle. We got a million and a half people on, on in a, a circulation on Sunday. Yeah. So I'm very, very visible. Um, but I always thought to myself, well, he's after young couples and uh, yeah. happy people. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's not me. <laughs> not, 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 <laughs> I'm all working on this. Not, not, <laughs> so. not an obsessive guy like doing this. Yeah. yeah out right. in the sunshine. Yeah. Your toast is burning. You choose at some point in our lives how to physically construct each letter. Once we lock that into our brains, the handwriting may change over the years, but the moves themselves remain unaltered. Understand? Yes. Except Zodiacs doesn't. Specifically with his K. In his first letters, he executed the K with two strokes. Later letters, he did them with three. Why? We don't know. Uh, excuse me, I gotta spray this. How many suspects were cleared through handwriting? All of them. Also the prison and cab. No match was ever found. Is there any way that... Someone could beat a handwriting test? No. Whoever the Zodiac is, he's not someone I cleared. About a month ago, a man showed up on my doorstep, very distraught. Uh, his name was Wallace Penny. He said he knew who the Zodiac was. Give me a name. Um, Rick? Rick somebody? Rick Marshall? Yeah. I think that the man who you talked to called me too. Well, after he left, then I checked my files. I never cleared a Rick Marshall. I love how Morel holds court in his garden because Graysmith ends up being framed by this kind of micro-wilderness and that's exactly where he is. He begins framed against this wilderness and eventually Philip Baker Hall's show of Morel is in the wilderness because he drinks just like Paul Avery. The final note of that scene sees Morel in the dark in this sort of cavernous little undercover area, whether it's intended, whether it's osmosis. He, despite his structures, is just as in the dark as Graysmith. Hello? Hello, who is this?
wrong number. Does the name Rick Marshall mean anything to you? What are you after? What do you got? Hypothetically, you just named my favorite suspect in the whole case. This is off the record. A couple years back, I was trying to get Marshall's prints. I handed him a photo. He looks at it, he's about to give it back, and he stops and he says, my goodness, I got fingerprints all over this. And he wipes them off. Well, why didn't you test him for handwriting? Because when they finally did run his prints, they cleared him against the one in Stein's cap. So then it's not him. Maybe yes, maybe no. No, what do you mean? Zodiac left gloves behind at the scene. If he had the foresight to bring gloves with him, how the hell is he going to accidentally leave a print behind? But it was in the victim's blood. Could have been one of the bystanders or a cop just reaches out, boom, false print. Yeah, but that print disqualified 2,500 suspects. Which is why we also used handwriting. But not for Rick Marshall. SFPD saw a handwritten sign in the window of his house. Decided it looked nothing like the Z letters, so they just moved on. How do they know that Rick Marshall wrote the sign? My thoughts exactly. Rick Marshall was a Navy man. He received code training. He was also a projectionist at a silent film theater. Well, then how do I get copies of Rick Marshall's handwriting? Three ways. One, get a warrant, which you can't. Two, get him to volunteer, which he won't. And three, get creative. I don't know what you're talking He's done a log's first-hand impressions of the Fincher-Kubrick comparison, followed by April Wool's discussion of the conditions that he creates for his actors. There's, there's, a, I, I wondered because I wasn't of this, I wasn't in this group, I don't know. I know Adam Baldwin, I know Matthew Modine. I know a few people who worked with um, Stanley Kubrick, right? And so Kubrick, and it seems to me a little bit like, um, Kubrick could be a, it seemed like he was being perverse and, and punitive and he was doing some weird control sh stuff, you know, yeah. to to drag people through that mud a hundred times and just to be mean in a way. And yes. I don't know if, if some of those directors, like the story of Shelley Duvall on The Shining, it's so, it's brutal. And I don't know if they just like watching someone, and they used to in the old days, I think they just like watching someone's spirit get crushed. Yes. And then they'd go, I, I'm interested to see what happens here, which is insane. It is what it is. There's, they're used to, and I, I think that the, if there's one really good thing about things that the different changing climate right now, it's just those sadistic MFers are, they're gone now, right? Like no one's going to be able to get away with wearing an ascot and being a dickhead, and, and, uh, right? Like, being, but it, and then they're done. But But it's like, there's the perverse ones and then... And you wonder if he cut his teeth, Kubrick, on like the greatest story I've ever heard with Kubrick is the George C. Scott in Strange Love as General Buck Turgidson. And he's like, Kubrick literally had me do 20 takes where I was going straight faced, like giving really serious, right. dramatically real performances. And then he'd go, George, we've got it. Thank you. Now, can you just do me a wild one? Just go wild for me. And yeah. the movie is all of those wild takes. All the wild takes. It's like, it, but he let him go through 20 dramatic ones. I love that. 
Yeah. That that's And a, by the way, that's kind of my style. My style as an actor is, and I'll never compare myself to George C. Scott or Stanley Kubrick or Peter Sellers or any of these greats. Um, but what I like to do is, our, my job is to give the director what they want. And yes. even yeah. in the case of David Fincher, if what they want isn't something he necessarily knows on the moment, he just wants to see, that's my job. Not to argue with them, not to drag my heels, not to get into the, my character wouldn't. I see that shit happen. I hate it. All of us hate it. We're on set. Maybe someone's scared to suck. And so they get into this kind of stuff and they were like, man, there was a time for this conversation and it's not right now. Yes. And, um, you know, that person, that man or woman was hired to direct something. It's harder in television because they come in episode after episode. And, you know, you as the cast like Gotham, we, we in a weird way have a little bit more control and power because we've been around all the time yeah but you're you you want to be nice to these people and let them know that you're here to try and serve their vision that being said like when that's done when they have what they want and it's really good and you're in a good you know you're you're respectful with them and of course they're giving you that respect back i love saying can we try one where i just can i surprise you a little bit can i just go you know, and invariably there's something about that, that you have it, the takes in the cam, we got what we need and now let's just free fly and go for it. And, you know, why couldn't you have it on every take? And well, part of it is because you don't want to, you don't, it's disrespectful to your castmates, you know, <laughs> that you're going to do your own shit yes. every time, but it's fun to do that thing. That's a big accomplishment for, especially for a director who is so like, synonymous with like a hundred takes uh, <laughs> I, I mean it's but that's i mean that's what he does with with his actors is just like he does kind of put them through the ringer but he does try to set up the right conditions for them yes. you listen to the the commentary on the game for instance michael douglas was like very impressed with the fact that he was never gotten from his trailer until um they were absolutely ready for the setup there was no like waiting for him and he would have to kind of like psych up to get into the character again it was just like it, it was kind of like a respect of his time in, yes. in that sense um and you know i don't know if he does that with all of the actors that he's with like michael douglas is a different echelon um <laughs> yes you know one one might hope but um yeah there's there's it's it's strange because a guy like this is also having he he's got so much economy in his film language too. Yes. And I'm thinking like even things like moving left to right or right to left, uh, front to back, like within a scene, like there's there's just a great deal of movement and and allowing the blocking to kind of take precedence of that. I'm thinking of um, Jake Gyllenhaal's characters coming out of the file room when he's allowed to go into the file room and he has to memorize everything because he can't have a pen <laughs> have and a he pen. runs out right. <laughs> and you've got it. You've got a shot here um, that is uh, it's you know kind of a a. a medium wide and he runs past the the frame out the door and in the foreground you have a cop with his back turned to you and then you have yeah. the 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 chief there of uh, i think it's like vallejo or solano yeah, jack, jack jack mullinex is a uh, vallejo yep that's yes, uh, Elias yeah. Curtis's character, yeah. Yeah, so you've got like the chief of Vallejo there and and 
then, so the chief of Vallejo says something very witty, of course. And then the cop turns to over his left shoulder. <laughs> yes. And and then you get to see him, you know, in a profile. He delivers his line in that way. But we're all kind of, all the movement is going from right to left. And that means like the next scene has to catch us up from there. And there's just, just a smooth, smooth editing and uh, transition from a really smooth scene. Everything just seamless, seamless, seamless. Two, get him to volunteer, which he yeah. won't. Get creative. I don't know what to tell you. You get it, I'll analyze it. Beyond that, you're on your own. What about the guy who, who, who came to see you, the one who called me? You mean Wallace Penny? Yeah, did, did he did he leave a number? Hello. Hi, this is Robert Graysmith. I need a sample of Rick Marshall's handwriting. I, I told you, Vaughn. Mr. Penny, Rick Marshall is the Zodiac. I need a sample of his handwriting to confirm it. Can you help me or not? Rick used to draw movie posters for the theater Vaughn worked at. I'll send one down. Thank you. One beautiful note here is seeing time passing through the decor changes from the 70s mustard to the cool blue and cold white of the new newsroom. This time, though, Graceman's trying to escape attention. These follow-up calls about Zodiac need to be made from the privacy of different rooms. No one wants the Zodiac to dominate the Chronicle as different franchises pass. Here's Robert Graysmith himself on getting creative. Somebody told me that they recognized Zodiac printing. And I said, where did you see this? And it's at the Avenue Theater. Now, this is an old-time theater where the ushers wear tuxedos and their old Model T's and Stutz Bearcats and, you name it, all these really valuable cars in the lobby. And so these movies are so old. They're silent movies. They don't have uh, posters. So somebody at that theater had to draw those posters. They take a felt tip pen, they print them out. Comes midnight when everything's closing up, they throw them on the. They just throw them down. Well, I was waiting, and I get this, and I take it up to Sherwood Morrell, who's <laughs> incredible, and he goes, "My God, this is the closest to Zodiac lettering I've ever seen." Well, I went right back. So I'm thinking, uh, Bob Vaughn, maybe he wrote these. I don't need to see more samples. Yeah, but, but is it... Oh, no, it's as close as I've ever seen. We have to tread lightly here. We're talking about implicating this man as the Zodiac. Who I can get more. I'll just find Vaughn and I'll track down Linda. Um, I mean, Linda is Darlene's sister. I've been to the DMV and, and I talked to her parents, but still, nobody knows where to find her. Mr. Graysmith, most of the writing matches the exemplar. In a way, though, it's the part that doesn't match that scares me the most. What do you mean? Well, on the poster, the one letter that absolutely, positively does not match is the letter K. Here's Justin Chang and then Clay Keller and what it's like to need to know. All of which is to say that through all this and this kind of, you see that it takes decades even just for people to like 
be willing to talk to each other mm. because and it's only after the trail goes cold because when the trail is warm of course they're not allowed to they can't you know it's only because the, this has now become a cold case that you're like well nobody cares so i guess what sure here's these you know here's these files if you want you know whatever indulge you but but there is something really inspiring and moving about that persistence and even though it comes to naught even if it's only the the glow of satisfaction that they appreciated having you know in their minds maybe figured out who the zodiac killer is um and we get to kind of share that with them for a moment even though nothing ever comes of it in any official or legal sense um there is a kind of it's like there's this it's this I don't know. It's both. It, it is profoundly depressing, but it's also profoundly kind of hopeful. It's like, no, it, it's not. In, their work is not in vain. It, it, it is in vain, you know, in 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 most senses, but it's not in vain in, in this one particular sense. And it is. And I do remember when we first started talking about this, when you were still thinking about doing this podcast, because we were, we were of course talking about it in regard to all the presidents' men, which is such a touchstone for this movie. But in that one, you know, the, the most obvious difference is that you know that one you know of course something comes of it and it changes the course of history and this one this one it doesn't so it's like it, it the, the two movies which you know which have as many differences as they have similarities of course but you really really do lay out just the they're they're so <laughs> they're just so different in how in where they leave you at the end you know well, and yeah, it, 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 that that obsessive level of detail is something that Fincher brings to everything and he, he knows that every little bit matters yes you know and even if it's something that people don't notice often the things oftentimes the things that the general audience won't notice are the things that have the biggest impact yeah and it's fascinating and it's it and it also speaks to that when you're looking for the zodiac you're you see the zodiac everywhere yes uh and it's uh it it, it is it is not just the you know, and, and I'm sure you've talked about this with lots of other people, but and that's the, the the bigger picture thing with why society gets fascinated with people like this, and particularly this era where you had all of these serial killers, is that you know it 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 um it isn't just the literal danger of I'm gonna be somewhere, the literal zodiac will be there and they will kill me, or that the zodiac is out for me. Yes. It is it is the paranoia it creates, it is the um people being suspicious of each other, of their neighbors, uh, this kind of just gripping all of society in this uh, sort of diffuse, non-specific fear and uh, being, you know, um, thinking that everyone around you could be, you know, could be a killer. And it's 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 a fascinating thing. And there's lots of movies that explore it. And it's, and it's a phenomena that um, makes that particular, those few decades there when there was that, that first big explosion of serial killers so fascinating. He says, I need to look him in the eyes and know that it's him. And Gyllenhaal, even though part of him is saying, uh, this guy might be Zodiac, I might die in this basement. He fucking follows him down here because there's another part of him that, uh, his life is secondary in terms of what is most interesting to him right now. Then he's like, I might, I might find out right now who the Zodiac is. And yeah. if it means I only know it for 10 seconds before I get killed, there's some part of him that is okay with that. And he is just drawn further and further down in. You wouldn't happen to have any animal crackers in there, would you? Unit five, Toskin needs to call in all animals. 
Dave Tosky. Yeah, what's up? Jennings here from the Chronicle. Came in this morning and you need to see it right now. See what? The new Zodiac letter. And it mentions you. Okay, okay. All adjustments. Now. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Dave. Yeah, we're with you. This is the Zodiac speaking. I'm back with you. Tell Herb Kane I am here. I have always been here. That city pig Toski is good, but I am smarter and better. He will get tired, then leave me alone. I'm waiting for a good movie about me. Who will play me? I'm now in control of all things. These guys are from internal affairs. Carrots are perfect. Fine, but you have to come back and finish at least half of what's on that plate. Thank you, Eric. San Francisco Chronicle columnist Armistead Moffin says that he thinks not only is this new letter a forgery, but it was written by the very man trusted to hunt down this killer, David Toskey. Moffat, a very well-respected author, has gone on record saying that he believes Toskey wrote the letter to drum up publicity for himself. The difference is dark almost immediately. The formal warmth of Toskey and Armstrong's car rides is gone. A cold, dark, gray San Francisco lies ahead. This new news of a Zodiac letter makes the heart leap the pulse quicken. But rather than focusing on a potential new suspect, an attitudinal change has arrived. Police themselves trying to be involved, trying to sway public opinion towards their role in their city and the potential that Toski is the architect of this entire terrorist fear campaign. Sitting back at home, Melanie and Robert with their children There once was a facade that their life and their family was the most important thing at their table. And now, new news of the Zodiac. And not only Robert, but his children are drawn to a bulletin. Could Dave Toskey, the man we've seen so tirelessly pursuing the Zodiac, be implicated here? Could anyone believe that he's the one behind it all? So much of the film is reinforced that these central characters, while hubristic, while sometimes brash, I don't even think for a moment here that we believe it. Grace missing disbelief. And all that we're being told is that no one involved when the Zodiac case happened still wants to be involved. Armstrong is gone. Avery is on a houseboat. Everyone's been reassigned. Except for Robert. 
to conclude, here's the incredible John Carroll Lynch talking about Finch's toolkit as a filmmaker. And finally, Donal Logue on the fact that we are drawing to this non-conclusion. And why we're drawn to non-conclusion. But the degree to which the, the, the tools uh, of filmmaking are at Fincher's disposal, disposal and the way in which he can think about a movie, it's, it's astounding. It's, it's not true just of him, of course. There are others with that kind of, that kind of mastery of this very complicated uh, form. But um, um, from a filmmaking standpoint, the money, the equipment, the talent, and the material are all in the same equation in his head. Yes. And he knows what the mold needs to be in order to pour the bronze during production so that later on when he's actually making the movie, he can make the movie he needs to make. And I read about Mank and uh, uh, it was clear in the making of that movie that he is more and more, um, because of the ability of production to be more malleable yes. in post-production, He's he's making more and more choices in post production than he than he has done in the past, and will continue to. But wherever the energy of control is, you can bet that Fincher is standing right there. That's where their genius is. I mean, absolutely. And it was it's so terrifying. There are so many terrifying aspects to this movie that has no conclusion. Yes. Unlike every other movie we've ever seen, where it's like, oh, they're catching up. Oh my God, they're not. Oh, they're going to miss it. Or, you know, and the sad, even like Silence of the Lambs, which I think is one of the, is a perfect movie in yeah, a lot a, of ways. It's, a pin, it's the pinnacle. It's just incredible. But you have that satisfaction. You get the, oh no, they're at the wrong. Oh shit, she's at the house. But none of that in Zodiac. It's no. just that achingly disgusting, that thing that your life is destroyed and you'll never know the answer and how many lives were kind of destroyed by the chasing and how sad what happened to, you know, oh man, just that psychological that went, you know, and then that thing that sadly happens where people, you know, write, write letters to, you know what I mean? Where you get caught in this kind of, um, yeah, Toski got caught in like this Tosky desperate got circle. Caught, you know, and, and why did you need, you know, and also you wouldn't understand unless you had been kind of destroyed by, by Zodiac. That concludes the 20th episode of Zodiac Chronicle Libra Part 2. Be sure to subscribe to this show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes. And if you can't get enough to unplug, Zodiac Sessions will be available exclusively on the One Heat Minute Productions Patreon, linked in our show notes. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy of Los Espinas. Our companion, I Am Not Avery, Zodiac Chronicle stickers were done by the incredibly talented Amy Reed, who you can find on her Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. But until next time. Goodbye.